This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. I'm Christy Schreiber, and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us. And I'm Gary Schreiber, and this is the How to Love It podcast. Today, we finish up our three-part series on Albert Camus' classic novella, L'Etranger. Did I finally say that yes. right? Yes. Oh, great. <laughs> That's translated in English to either the stranger or the outsider, depending on which side of the Atlantic Ocean you reside. Yes, and we talked extensively about problems with translation when we discussed Emily Wilson's translation of the Odyssey, but it's a subject that will come up any time someone seeks to translate anything. How much of any translation is affected by the personal interpretation of the translator? Even in a book written so deliberately simple in its construction that most French 3 students can read it in French... The translation of this book has seen a fair share of controversy, starting with the title, but extending to page after page. Let me give you an example from the first page, uh, and then if we have time, maybe we'll revisit the last page when we get to the end today. But that famous first line that reads, Aujourd'hui, maman est morte. Aujourd'hui means today. Eh is mort means dead. That sounds pretty straightforward, but the problem is, how do you translate that second word? Mama. Some translators have translated it mother, but others say if you do that, you throw the book off, arguing it's not today mother died, it's today mommy is dead. But mama isn't exactly mommy either, because mommy is kind of babyish. But it's an English word that has tenderness, and mother can be sterile. Also notice that there was a change in the order of the words in English. And in a book so intent on using words so sparingly and so deliberately, do we miss the true impact of that first line if we say mother died versus Mommy is dead. <laughs> so you know what I have to say about all that? No, what do you have to say? I think it's just absurd. Yes, it is. <laughs> it's absurd. It's all absurd. And yet it matters, hmm. which is the definition of absurd. <laughs> uh, we'll have a controversy to bring up in regard to misunderstanding and uh, misrepresenting Camus. Oh, really? Yes. Uh, in. We'll go down the music road for a moment. Yay! In uh, 1976, the English rock band The Cure released its very first single, and it was titled Killing an Arab. You know, the intent of the single was to reference and really honor Camus' novel. I want to read the lyrics and, and see after reading part one of the novel if you see the connection the songwriter Robert Smith was making with uh, Camus. Let's do it. Here's what he says. Standing on the beach with a gun in my hand, staring at the sea, staring at the sand, staring down the barrel at the Arab on the ground, I can see his open mouth, but I hear no sound. I'm alive, I'm dead, I'm the stranger, killing an Arab. 
I can turn and walk away or I can fire the gun, staring at the sky, staring at the sun. Whichever I choose, it amounts to the same. Absolutely nothing. Well, even if it's controversial, he captured the essence of the <laughs> Yeah, for sure. Uh, from a literary perspective, it's a fairly straightforward musical homage, not just to the story of the stranger, but it clearly expresses, you know, Camus' vision of the absurd, this indifference of the universe in the face of humanity. Yeah, I think so, too. Um, however, it was not universally well-received. I mean, The Cure were labeled as, a, as racist and have sometimes chosen to sing the song with uh, revised lyrics of Kissing an Arab. Huh. Well, to be honest, as I look back at the words and think about that title, with no context, even though it's obviously a direct reference for sure, it most certainly would be misunderstood to anyone who hasn't read The Stranger which I'll just speak for Americans. That would probably be most Americans. <laughs> <laughs> or they were forced to read it in high school and forgot yeah, it. Yeah, true. That's true. Um, true, too. In fact, if you were to read just the title, Killing an Arab on Spotify or Apple Song Suggestion, uh, you likely would be kind of triggered, especially if you are Middle Eastern or have friends or professional acquaintances, that, which today most of us do. Uh, I don't even think that's even arguable. And so uh, it's been The Cure's most controversial song for the last 50 years. Wow. Well, they haven't been making music for 50 years, but that... <laughs> It's it's it it's stands stuck around, out, right? Yeah. Uh, it, it's been widely dropped from radio. It's been rebranded under the title "Standing on a Beach," which has helped some. Um, uh, it also contains a, a sticker on the album. It's, the sticker reads. The song Killing an Arab has absolutely no racist overtones whatsoever. It is a song which decries the existence of all prejudice and consequent violence. The cure condemns its use and furthering anti-Arab feeling. So, uh, although it has had this controversial bit, uh, for those of us who love music, um, The Cure is really what introduced me to The Stranger. So it's been a mixed reception, but honestly, uh, starting in the 60s and even to this day, there's quite a bit of existentialism, especially in punk rock and new wave music. And another example of that would be The Doors and their song Five to One, which literally says, no one gets out alive. Or, I like this one, Smells Like Teen Spirit by Nirvana, which starts out with, load up on guns, bring your friends, it's fun to lose and to pretend. Yeah, I have to be honest, I really don't know a whole lot about punk music and, and the music scene <laughs> in general. You were, you were away in Brazil at that time. I'm not sure that's an excuse. Well, well Marceau would say it, it doesn't matter, because we were all going to die either way. <laughs> So let's recap where we are in our series on Camus and the book, The Stranger. In episode one, we introduced Camus' home country of Algeria and a little about his life. We introduced the idea that is forever associated with Camus, and that is absurdism. And we got through chapter one. Right. And absurdism is that irreconcilable idea that the desires and passions of our heart are going to collide with an indifference and haphazardness of the universe we seem to inhabit. So the universe don't doesn't care about us, but we can't stop wanting to make it care. And our guy, Merceau, confronts the absurdity of the world, and he cannot resolve what to do with this conclusion that he's arrived at, that nothing matters. And let me just say now, although Camus will offer... Uh, some sort of advice, he's not going to offer a dogmatic answer to the question, to that particular question at the end of the book. Uh, over the course of his life, he did allow his thinking and it evolved from book to book. The book The Plague is a development from The Stranger. And when you get to The Rebel, which a lot of scholars consider to be his best work, you see an even greater evolution of thought on what exactly is the answer to that question. But here we see Camus at the beginning of his journey into the world of the absurd. And he presents the problem of understanding the absurd nature and argues emphatically against other ways that people have erroneously, and I'll say dishonestly and even harmfully responded to the absurdity of life. Well, I will say it does help to read Camus' companion piece, The Myth of Sisyphus, because it explains 
these ideas where here Camus expresses the emotions and the experience of the absurd. Um, in The Stranger, we watch this young man deal with all the absurdity of life, the absurdity of man confronting the absolute certainty of death. And whether you live to be 12 or 50 or 103 and, and adding to the inescapability of annihilation, Rousseau, as must we all, faces the very other inescapable burden of being a human. And that is the feeling of guilt. And we argued last week uh, to look at the symbol of the sun to express this, this confusing yet perpetual uh, and indomitable discomfort. But guilt and death are not the only human dilemmas that uh, Merceau is going to confront. And today we add a third absurdity uh, of being a human, our insatiable need to find meaning in a world where we are obviously just a speck. <laughs> Without a grand plan or a divine plan or anything and everything we do, really, no matter how big or small, is just equally pointless. You know, if it's measured against the millions of years of time itself. And so we find ourselves uh, just like Sisyphus pushing a, uh, a rock up a hill just to watch it fall down and then have to do it all over again. And uh, if we're honest, uh, that's the key. If we're honest, we know this to be true. And we know that we are specs, as we have discussed. Well, and Camus decries this. Let me quote him. Nothing is clear. All is chaos. That all man has is his lucidity and his definite knowledge of the walls surrounding him. Huh. Well, The Stranger begins with death. Uh, the climactic end of part one is death, and now we will confront it for the third time at the end of part two. And we talked about the vague, abstract guilt that Merceau experiences with the death of his mother. Uh, however, as we got to the, the end of part one, um, Camus creates a contrast with a flat-out murder. That's a more concrete expression of death, and that's got a straightforward connection to guilt. And when I finished part one, there was no confusion in my mind as to who was guilty of the murder. Uh, yet Merceau is going to express no remorse and although it causes an outburst of laughter at the court, when asked, he basically says, the son made me do it, <laughs> which is a very strange defense. And strangely enough, I, as a reader, seem to understand maybe where he's coming from. But I do have another question. Merceau pointlessly murders a man he only identifies as an Arab. I mean, Christy, are we supposed to see anything racial about this? And why doesn't this man have a name? Well, again, any question with Camus always is going to have a difficult answer. <laughs> but we know Camus had many Arabic friends. We know that. So I don't think we should look at this book in terms of race. This story claims that no one's life has value, regardless so, of anything, period. French or Algerian, <laughs> you're matter. still worthless. Yes. The Arab is insignificant for sure. But so is Merceau, who won't even outlive the Arab by a year. Uh, it's not about the Arab. It's not about the man or the woman who gets beaten up by Ramon. It's not even about Marie. Uh, all three of these people are victims. The Arab, obviously, the last and the most horrific expression of victimization. This is about Merceau, who cannot see that any of that even matters. And so if nothing matters, what's the difference? Eating, drinking, sleeping, smoking, beating up women, getting a promotion, murdering people. It's all the same. Total nihilism. Nothing matters. <laughs> <laughs> oh, why are we laughing? I don't know. It's a, it's Doesn't a, matter. It's a, oh, there you go. Uh, what is interesting about Merceau beyond being pretty nihilistic is what he does with uh, this reality. And what he does is refuse to pretend things matter when he clearly believes they don't. Uh, he won't pretend to love Marie if he doesn't. He won't pretend to care for Ramon's girlfriend, so he doesn't. He doesn't feel any sadness when his mom dies, so he doesn't cry. He doesn't have remorse for killing the Arab, so he doesn't fake it. And that is how most of us are different, really, from Merceau. I mean, we clearly understand that as social beings, no matter what we actually feel, we should follow certain social <laughs> it's norms. It's advisable. Yeah. Uh, so for most of us in these same situations, uh, no matter how we felt about any of this, we most certainly would have expressed the proper emotions and we would have expressed empathy. You know, you may not cry at your mother's funeral, but you wouldn't smoke a cigarette. <laughs> I mean, last episode, we uh, read a quote by Camus describing Marceau and Camus said that Merceau is simply a man who does not play the game. And today we ask, 
Is it for this reason that he is ultimately killed? Exactly. And is he right to not play the game? That's the question. And Camus says yes. And that is what makes him a hero. Because up to this point, you know, you, you, you don't like this guy, but your opinion should shift a little bit. At least he wants you to. And this is a person uh, that we can emulate in one way. Uh, he is not a person that does just every single thing wrong. Well, I would like to point out one of the tricks that Camus pulls off in this book is he takes a somebody who who's looking like a sociopath <laughs> who has no empathy for other humans and turns him into a hero. And exactly. So the big question is, what is the game of life? I mean, what's wrong with following social norms? And what does Camus value here with uh, this really disagreeable character? Uh, and finally, why are the stakes of this game so high that refusing to play it's going to cost lives? Obviously, again, as we could do with all things Camus, great questions. We have to stop asking questions. All <laughs> oh, it's not possible. But here's the paradoxical answer that will take the rest of the episode uh, to really flesh out. Truth one for Camus. This is basic. Death is inevitable. We start there. Truth two. The cost of playing the game is never living at all. For Camus, many of us commit philosophical suicide pretty early on. And so when we do that, we actually confess to ourselves that our lives are not worth living. Well, I'm going to, you know, it's a metaphor that makes sense, I guess, but that's really abstract. And <laughs> what, what does philosophical suicide even look like? Yes. In her part two of the book, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> It shows us. Uh, as we look at Merceau, who never commits philosophical suicide, that's the thing that this guy doesn't do. We see a guy who stays honest with himself until his moment of death. And let's look at the truths that really define him. For one, Merceau is an atheist. He doesn't like religion at his mother's funeral. He doesn't even like Sundays. He doesn't believe in God. And so he won't pretend that he does, even, because he doesn't. This, by the way, isn't necessarily an appropriate social belief in the 1940s, not in France, not in Algeria, not in a lot of places around the world. Rousseau is told that everyone believes in God. He is told that all criminals confess before they face the guillotine. Of course, a careful reader knows, well, that can't possibly be true. All people agree on nothing. What might be true that most of us under pressure will pretend to believe in whatever we need to to fit into our communities, be we Christian, Muslim, Jewish, Hindu, Buddhist, anything. Many of us do believe that's true, and I'm not going to take away from that. But what about the others that don't? Often we play the game. In this culture, to be an atheist is to be an outsider, and most of us just don't want to be that. But for Merceau, he absolutely cannot make himself pretend. He isn't going to pretend to be a Christian just because the magistrate wants him to or just because the priest wants him to. Even if just a half-hearted fake confession would extend his life, and culturally it probably would have. He's also not going to lie to himself about believing in Jesus just so he can keep on breathing air. And let me add that neither the magistrate or the priest really do anything to actually meet him where he's at with his atheism. And uh, they don't try to have an honest conversation or, or even really trying to make sense. Um, they don't try to cite some ontological arguments for the existence of God by quoting Rene Descartes or Soren Kierkegaard or any of those people. I mean, there is no discussion about the proofs of God. No, they don't even quote the Bible. They make it about themselves. This is the quote. Do you want my life to be meaningless? And this, of course, is an absolute absurd line of reasoning to Merceau. And it's an absurd line to, of reasoning to anybody reading the book. It's irrational. Camus is suggesting that they won't have these conversations, not even with themselves. These guys have already committed philosophical suicide. They just want an easy answer to the problem of finding meaning in their lives, and it doesn't matter if it makes zero sense. Merceau sees this as absurd. I mean, that's why he's nihilistic. <laughs> wow. Well, I, I think it's a good idea to define what we're calling nihilism. I mean, 
Basically, nihilism is the belief we've heard um, or so pronounced time and time again. And, you know, it's coming to the conclusion that nothing matters. My job, my girlfriend, morality, not even my mother, not even myself. I mean, he's consistent and uh, very truthful, unfortunately, as Camus says this. Man is always prey to his truths. Once he has admitted them. He cannot free himself from them. I think that's an interesting quote. And, you know, Merceau has admitted to himself a few truths, and now he's prayed to what that means. And um, a few issues with his belief system are this, uh, detachment and apathy, uh, inertia and guilt. You might even say a little bit of hedonism. And those are the problems he's trying to solve with this, this point of view. True. And in part two, our absurd hero is interrogated after being arrested for the murder of an Arabic man on a beach. Part two feels just as absurd as part one does, but in a very, very different way. In the first part of the book, we see the absurdity in how Merceau reacts to life. But here we're going to see the absurdity in the world and how everyone else is reacting to life. Merceau is locked away in a prison with nothing to do. He even has to give up smoking, Hmm. poor guy. Well, that'll extend his life. (laughs) No. By sentence three, he's been locked up for a week, and he's in front of the magistrate. We don't have magistrates in the United States, but we can. this is basically just their version of a judge. And a lot of time passes in the first and second chapters of part two. I mean, 11 months, to be exact, but nothing really happens. I mean, Merceau is um, stripped away from the world, from women, from cigarettes, from his job, from his favorite diner, and from his neighbors. I mean, he's cut off from everything. And uh, Merceau was uh, put through this um, crucible of nihilism to see if he can really subsist in a world with nothing. And he actually finds out that he can. I mean, he finds out once you get used to your reality, you can be happy anywhere. He's finding some amazing conclusions. Yeah. Merceau, well, you know, you do that when your life is sped up so fast. But Merceau, since his arrest, has watched the world play a game with him almost as a game piece. He's been in the game. When he's appointed a lawyer, which is required by law to do, he literally says, it all seems like a game to me. Merceau, as we know from Camus, won't play the game, but... Society will do that, with or without his consent. Merceau will face extreme pressure to play this game. He will confront first the power of the state, secondly the power of culture in the form of religion, and finally the power of the absurd, the magistrate, the priest, and the guillotine. He will lose only once, (laughs) and that's to the absurd. Uh, You know, this is a good time to look back at the myth of Sisyphus and uh, Camus' first sentence, where he says the only serious philosophical problem is about committing suicide, should I kill myself. I mean, this seems rough, and of course, he is talking about physical suicide. You know, but more importantly, the broader idea is something he terms philosophical suicide, and The idea of physical suicide is obvious. One decides that life really has no point at all, and so one physically, you know, can despairingly choose to take it. True. And I want to be clear about this. Camus absolutely rejects this notion. Suicide is not an answer. Not physical suicide, but also not philosophical suicide. This second dimension of suicide is what is symbolized in this book by this powerful symbol of the crucifix, and we see it in the role of the priest. For Camus, philosophical suicide is just as damaging, and honestly, maybe it's even more damaging than physical suicide. For one reason, is often philosophical suicide leads you well, leaves you vulnerable to demagoguery and violence and murder in the name of an, and I'll put it this way, in the name of an ism. Mm, the isms. The isms. Camus suggests philosophical suicide is way more common as an approach to dealing with life's absurdity. It's an easy but a very dishonest way to confront life's absurdity. It's hypocritical, and it demands that we lie not just to others, but to ourselves. It demands we surrender our freedom of choice, our consciences, and that what defines us as being human. 
It's what makes us alive to begin with is our consciousness. And if you violate that, that's what he's going to call philosophical suicide. You know, in the midst of World War II, um, this was what he saw in Europe. And the result was death and despair and destruction and, you know, really all in the name of a greater good. And I want to point out uh, that Camus was very much a war hero. I mean, during the Second World War, he joined the Combat Resistance Group. Uh, he became the editor of their underground paper during the war and after the war. Uh, he faced real danger. I mean, death was not theoretical in Paris during the, the German occupation uh, when you're an outspoken member of the resistance. <laughs> no, I would say not. Yeah, draws a lot of attention. And so from his early days as an orphan of World War One and the son of a woman from Spain, he saw that people he saw what people did in the name of their ism, whatever it is, you know, in the name of fascism. Many defied their own consciences and followed Hitler and Franco. And in the name of communism, millions were butchered. And in the name of nationalism, Algeria tore its own country apart. And in a Kumbah editorial published um, August eighth, nineteen forty five, Camus was the first to condemn the United States for dropping nuclear bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. He called it the terrifying perspectives opened up to humanity. I mean, all of these are demagoguery masquerading as humanitarianism, and that's the great problem. Yes, and religion has masqueraded as well. The name of God, in which Camus didn't even believe, has often been wielded like a weapon to force us to surrender our consciences, to commit philosophical suicide. So there, there's pressure from within and pressure from without to lie to ourselves. I mean, it's just a miserably easy thing to do. And, you know, of course, from a psychological perspective, that is crippling. I mean, every time you lie to yourself, you disorient yourself in the world. And that's a super important idea. So why do it? Well, we do it in response to the absurd. I mean, uh, according to Camus, I mean, we need to have meaning in the world. And uh, we want to be part of something big and meaningful that will outlast us and define us and give us a reason to confront our suffering. And so we pick something. And it could be anything, really. It can be a career, a child, a sports team, um, a delusion of a, a personal dynasty. I mean, lots of people do that. But but what Camus saw was people in 1940, uh, it was their ideologies, their isms, their religions, some of which were secular religions. Um, these are the hidden demagogueries, which he's going to illustrate really in part two of the book. Well, I think we need to, that's a big word. What's a demagoguery? <laughs> Demagogues, those are great. Uh, you know, demagoguery is when a leader really is going to appeal um, to the lowest prejudices of people and emotions. Uh, and he's going to create very simplistic cures for very complex problems. There will always be a scapegoat with a demagogue. And the ultimate goal is just to dominate everybody. Well, in Chapter 1, Marceau is interrogated by his lawyer and as the questions progress, they take on a sort of apparently very disconnected line of questioning about whether or not Merceau believes in God. Merceau says he doesn't. The lawyer returns with this line. It was impossible. All men believe in God. And of course, we know anytime someone says all people do this or no one does that, that's the language of demagoguery. We can't say that all people do anything. All people don't even breathe. There's always the ones on the ventilators that don't. But why make a statement like that? Why even bring it up? Why talk about God at all? What does God have to do with whether or not he killed this man? Well, this is going to be exclaimed in the next lines. That was his belief. And if we were ever to doubt it, his life would be meaningless. Do you want my life to be meaningless, he shouted. As far as I could see, it didn't have anything to do with me, and I told him so. But from across the table, he had already thrust the crucifix in my face and was screaming irrationally, I am a Christian. I ask him to forgive you for your sins. How can you not believe that he suffered for you? I was struck by how sincere he seemed, but I had had enough. It was getting hotter and hotter. As always, whenever I want to get rid of someone I'm not really listening to, I made it appear as if I agreed. To my surprise, he acted triumphant. You see, you see, he said, you do believe, don't you? And you're going to place your trust in him, aren't you? Obviously, I again said no. 
and he fell back in his chair. This is a very definition of philosophical suicide in the name of religion. I mean, this guy is throwing out cliche after cliche in ways that possibly can't make any sense. And he emotionally tries to force an agreement from Marceau because if Marceau won't go along, then his life, the lawyer's life, not Marceau's, but his life is meaningless. And this is the game that Mirceau won't play. And it won't matter how much pressure that magistrate, the priest, anybody puts uh, puts on him. He will rebel. He will not kill his own conscience. In part one, we see Mirceau wrestle with the forces of nihilism. But here in part two, we see him wrestle against the forces of philosophical suicide. There is a lot of pressure to take the easy way out. Turn off your brain. Accept my ism. Give your life meaning by believing in this, believing in something. It doesn't matter if you even do. That is what's being symbolized by this crucifix thrown in his face. Don't think about it. Just accept it. And for me, this is so easy to understand in terms of religion. Uh, Today, it's actually safer to talk about this in terms of religion instead of, you know, hot button current ideologies. Uh, But both religion and secular ideologies were rampant in Europe in the 1940s. And the First World War destroyed faith in a lot of people's lives. And religion began to give way to other forms of philosophical suicide. And the atrocities in the world were always being done in the name of a greater good. I mean, why did you know young Germans kill? It wasn't because they believed in murdering Jews, per se. It was because they believed in the motherland. Why were millions murdered in Russia? Uh, it was in the name of communism, the greater good. And how did Che Guevara and Fidel Castro justify killing countless numbers of people in Cuba? You know, for Camus, all of this starts at the individual level. And If life is absurd, then there is no greater good. What does it matter if you are of the left or if you're of the right, if you're religious or you're non-religious? I mean, if you are of this race or that race, you know, in the face of the absurd, we're all the same. And it doesn't matter. Uh, We're all going to face the guillotine in exactly the same way, alone, and with total assurance that we'll win. Take encouragement from that. (laughs) Well, I mean, he's he's not wrong about that. I mean, it doesn't matter what the ism is. It's not worth killing for. It's not worth lying to yourself about. Killing is agreeing with the absurd. Lying to yourself is as well. Camus was very consistent until the day he died about this one point. Killing and violence are never the answer. And ironically, and this is kind of an aside, he may have been killed for that idea. Of course, nobody knows what caused the car crash that ultimately killed him in 1960 when he was 46 years old. But there is some very credible conspiracies out there that it was not an accident. Speculation, of course, I'm sure, you know, no one will really ever know. Uh, So I don't feel justified going into the details, but just Google it if you're interested. It's kind of (laughs) interesting. You know, I want to make a point. Uh, Camus was born in 1913. He was raised during World War One, during uh, the prosperity of the 20s, during the Great Depression, and lives through World War Two. I mean, it takes all of those world, for- world forces to create in him this absurd nihilism. That, that wouldn't have happened normally without those world events. And you know, he enraged a lot of people, uh, but we one group we know about is the KGB. Uh, Camus wrote articles critical of the Soviet massacres in the Hungarian revolt of 1956, and these were not well received, but it didn't matter. You know, for Camus, the enemy of man is the absurd, and we should fight it with truth. And he campaigned vigorously against capital punishment. At one point, he flat out said, I'm not cut out for politics because I'm incapable of wanting or accepting the death of my adversary. 
Yes. For Camus, death starts with dishonesty about who you are, especially the kind of dishonesty where you lie to yourself about your own personal worth in this world. You think you're way more important than you are. You're more important than any other person. At the end of chapter one of part two, Merceau is called the Antichrist, which is an unusual designation to give if you're an atheist. Uh, he doesn't seem anything like the Jesus Christ in the Bible. But Camus sees here a secular Christ because Merceau dies for truth. Camus is not a Christian. He doesn't see Christ as a divinity, but he sees him as a person who died because Christ also would not play the game. He would not be dishonest with himself and others. That's how this analogy with Christ does hold true. Camus' idea is that both Merceau and Christ died because they stood up to a society bent on forcing them to confess lies about the nature of reality, which they absolutely would not do. Albeit, you know, their truths were very different. But in both cases, they preferred physical death over physical freedom, but mental slavery. <laughs> so much going on there. That I know. makes a that makes a person's head spin. How can we possibly understand all of that? I know. It's it's philosophically really complex and you just have to think about it for a long time. It's easier though to see it, and I like that Camus wrote a story. Um, over the course of time, you know, we watch as prison strips every pleasure out of Merceau's life. If you remember in part one, Merceau pretty much lived a life with the goal of finding as much pleasure as possible. His joys were, you know, smoking, sex, eating, relaxing, that sort of thing. But in jail, they strip every one of those away. And they say that's the punishment. But it's also somehow where Merceau finds some sort of peace and freedom. And I'm not saying Camus advocating for, you know, this kind of stoic lifestyle. But here we see that he's stripped from this terrible burden of guilt that bears down on him. Uh, here we see Merceau. He has to sleep on boards and there's bugs crawling all over him. His bathroom is a bucket. It's all pretty bad, but that's really not the point. After a while, Merceau adjusts to it. And in chapter two, he says it this way. At the time, I often thought that if I had had to live in the trunk of a dead tree with nothing to do but look up at the sky flowering overhead, little by little, I would have gotten used to it. Then he remembers something his mama used to say repeatedly, that you could get used to anything. <laughs> Yes, you can if it's all absurd, and, <laughs> which, of course, it's what he does. You know, for a nihilist who has said that nothing matters for the entirety of the book, the biggest paradox of the entire book um, is that Merceau does not want to die. He does not wish for a suicide of any kind. You know, the law kills him because he wants freedom on his own terms, and he can't have that. I mean, um, he's, he's killed in pursuit of life. He's killed because he will have his philosophical freedom, even if it costs him his life, and he will not commit philosophical suicide. And Camus in the uh, Myth of Sisyphus talks about the draw we have towards finding a meaning in a man-made construct. He says this, There is so much tenacious hope in the human heart. Even the most desperate men sometimes give their consent finally to illusion. True. And if Merceau has decided anything in his life, he has decided that he will not be that guy. But if he rejects nihilism, and I'll say that he does, and then if he goes on to reject philosophical or physical suicide, then what's your other option? How do you solve the reason to keep living in the world? What do you do to face the absurd? That's not a question Camus knew the answer to in his 20s. So don't expect a fleshed out answer. But Camus thinks he found step one in the process. And even if you're not a nihilist or even if you're not an atheist, there is something to agree with here. Merceau's life is going to get incredibly shortened and we see him change significantly in part two. In chapter three, we watch his trial. It's absolutely yet another expression of the absurd. There's never any doubt as to whether he killed or didn't kill the Arab. The question seems 
to be about if he should die for it. There's a long list of personal friends that come to his defense, but mostly they revisit the death of his mother, and it appears that he is being tried not for the murder of the Arab, but for the death of his mother and his reaction to her death. All of it is surreal, and we can get this crazy, frustrated feeling when we read it. At one point in the trial, the judge calls his mother's caretaker to the stand. The caretaker answers questions about, you know, Merceau's time at the home after his mother's passing. After the caretaker finishes, Merceau thinks, and I'll quote, It was then I felt a stirring go through the room, and for the first time, I realized that I was guilty. (laughs) Guilty for what? Killing killing the Arab? Killing his mother? I mean, what's he talking about? It's really just kind of an ambiguous stream of consciousness. And what have we learned with Camus? There is no answer. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, much of the logic of the prosecution is absolutely convoluted. The justification for condemning Merceau for killing a father is that he first killed a mother. Let's read that part. Just the introduction. Tomorrow, gentlemen, this same court is to sit in judgment of the most monstrous of crimes, the murder of a father. According to him, the imagination recoiled before such an odious offense. He went so far as to hope that human justice would mete out punishment unflinchingly. But he wasn't afraid to say it. My callousness inspired in him a horror nearly greater than that which he felt at the crime of parricide. And also, according to him, a man who is morally guilty of killing his mother severs himself from society in the same way as the man who raises a murderous hand against the father who begat him. In any case, the one man paved the way for the deeds of the other, in a sense foreshadowed and even legitimized them. I'm convinced, gentlemen, he said, raising his voice, that you will not think it is too bold of me if I suggest to you that the man who is seated in the dock is also guilty of the murder to be tried in this court tomorrow. He must be punished accordingly. And if that makes sense to you, read it a couple times, because it shouldn't. I mean, yeah. the, the, I mean it's, it's kind it's of disconnected. And would never stand up in an American <laughs> court of law. Well, or probably not a French one either, but he's convicted. So let's read that part. I didn't look in Marie's direction. I didn't have time to because the presiding judge told me in bizarre language that I was to have my head cut off in a public square in the name of the French people. Then it seemed to me that I suddenly knew what was on everybody's face. You know, Camus never knew his father. Uh, he died when Camus was one year old, just at the beginning of World War One, and Camus knew very little about him either. But in an essay called Reflections on the Guillotine, Camus writes about one of the only stories that his mother ever told him about his father. Let me read what Camus wrote in that essay. One of the rare things I know about him, in any case, is that he wanted to witness the execution for the first time in his life. He woke up in the middle of the night to get to the execution site at the other end of the city in the midst of a great throng. What he saw that morning, he did not say anything about to anyone. My mother told me that he came home like a gust of wind, his face overwhelmed, refused to talk, stretched a while on the bed, and suddenly threw up. He had just discovered the reality which hid under the great formulas which masked it. Hmm. So what does that mean to you? Again, how can we know? (laughs) I don't know. Uh, But this true story is embedded in Chapter 5, and it is a true story. Merceau asserts that there is nothing more important than an execution, man versus the absurd. He inserts a little bit of his personal life into this story. There's something very freeing for Camus about facing death, facing the certainty of it, the absurdity of it. It is only here that Merceau is convicted of murder that he finds strength within himself to exert any agency. He's going to lose that detachment, that passivity. He's going to transcend that nihilism that's been the hallmark of his existence up to this point. He's going to find courage to live, and he asserts himself by refusing to see the chaplain. You know, it's uh, it's also here that we see him start to think through the certainty of the guillotine. And I want to say, the guillotine's pretty certain. Uh, he wishes to really find a way to barter with it, you know, to, to cheat death somehow. But 
that's not going to happen. And, you know, death is not going to be cheated. And um, in his case, the machine of society is already at work and he really has to just embrace hopelessness and there's no hope of freedom. And uh, and that for Camus seems to be the key. Um, and it's the key to embracing life. It's the key to enjoying small things and not feeling compelled to find meaning in the greater good uh, or pursuing a delusion of uh, immortality in one way or the other. You know, in his later years, Camus said that he sought reasons to transcend out of darkest nihilism. You know, if you're a thinking person, uh, regardless of your position on the rational basis for the metaphysical or transcendent, the way to avoid nihilism is to find agency in yourself and, uh, you know, create your own future. And uh, for Camus, even if the universe doesn't have a plan, you have consciousness and it's really what makes you a person. And that's a great privilege, according to him. So don't give that up. Don't kill it off. Uh, make a life for yourself and live. And Camus said it really this way. It is a problem of our civilization. And what matters to us is to find out whether man alone, without the help of the eternal or of rationalistic thought, may create his own values. You know, when the priest comes for the last time, Merceau engages him with courage, with agency, with emotion. Unlike we've seen at any other time in the book, he's awake He's alive. His confrontation is passionate, and he realizes that the man he's talking to is already dead. Let's read. It's a long rant. We don't have time to read all of his reflections, but let's just read the first paragraph of that rant. Then I don't know why, but something inside me snapped. I started yelling at the top of my lungs, and I insulted him and told him not to waste his prayers on me. I grabbed him by the collar of his cassock. I was pouring out on him everything that was in my heart, cries of anger and cries of joy. He seemed so certain about everything, didn't he? And yet none of his certainties were with one hair of a woman's head. He wasn't even sure he was alive because he was like a living dead man. Well, you see a lot more emotion than you saw when Marie tried to marry him. Right. (laughs) Yeah, but... but After that rant, you know, after that confrontation, he's able to calm down and he sleeps. And he says, the wondrous peace of that sleeping summer flowed through me like a tide. When he wakes up, he thinks of his mother for the last time. He understands why she got engaged right at the end of her life. He feels ready to live life all over again. He opens himself, and I quote, to the indifference of the world and finds that he's happy. Some could suggest that's a really bad case of bad timing. <laughs> you know, better late than never. Uh, I guess, and that's about as late as you can make it. I mean, uh, after all the things Camus lived through during those turbulent decades, he never lost his faith in justice, uh, the life of the spirit, and he re- he never lost his faith in the power of truth. And you know, in a later essay titled "Letters to a German Friend," he says this. Man is that force which ultimately counsels all tyrants and gods. He is the force of evidence. If nothing has any meaning, you would be right. But there is something that still has meaning. Um, You know, in the same essay, he admits that he once had been nihilistic and thought exactly like the Merceau part one, that nothing mattered. And if nothing matters, and it doesn't matter if you beat up a woman or kill a person whose name you don't know. And It matters just about as much as getting married or getting a promotion, but he doesn't stay there. Uh, Later on, he's going to say this. I continue to believe that this world has no ultimate meaning, but I know that something in it has meaning, and that is man, because he is the only creature to insist on having one. This world has at least the truth of man, and our task is to provide its justification against fate itself, and it has no justification but man Hence, we must be saved if we want to save the idea we have of life. For Camus, man is nothing endowed with consciousness and the ability to have courage. And this is where Merceau arrives. And here you said bad timing. Unfortunately, Mm. (laughs) it's a little too late to live courageously or really live at all. But at least he doesn't commit suicide. He lives and he lived and he died free. And so he walks out to meet his fate with some of the strangest words to end a novel. And let me quote, 
I felt happy and that I was happy again. For everything to be consummated, for me to feel less alone, I had only to wish that there be a large crowd of spectators the day of my execution and that they greet me with cries of hate. (laughs) What does that mean? That sounds terrible. Why cries of hate? Again, we can never know. Mm. This is still Camus. Wouldn't we like to? You think I would stop asking questions (laughs) by now? Well, uh, I don't think Camus really wants us to know exactly. We have to speculate. We know, of course, that Merceau always felt like an outsider. He always thought of that nothing mattered, not even him. But now he knows he's wrong. It's not that he thinks he matters now, because I don't know that he does. But he can feel pride that he did not succumb to suicide at any level. He can be himself on the way out the door. And the larger the crowd, the better. If we read the companion piece, The Myth of Sisyphus, it ends a little bit easier to understand, if you can believe it. Uh, He says it a different way. Gary, let's read just that ending paragraph. I leave Sisyphus at the foot of the mountain. One always finds one's burden again, but Sisyphus teaches the higher fidelity that negates the gods and raises the rocks. He too concludes that all is well. This universe henceforth without a master seems to him neither sterile nor futile. Each atom of that stone, each mineral flake of that night-filled mountain in itself forms a world. The struggle itself towards the heights is enough to fill a man's heart. One must imagine Sisyphus happy. The Stranger is not just a book for atheists struggling with nihilism, although obviously it's clearly that. The Stranger is about confronting the realities of your existence with intellectual honesty. The futile rocks of life that we pick up and carry up the hill just to watch them fall and they just to pick them up and do it all over again, confront the absurd. Doing this is not the ending point, but it is the starting point. Don't lie to yourself about your speckness. Don't inflate your significance, your role. Resist the demigods. Don't commit violence. Be honest at least with yourself and take courage. Build if you want. Enjoy morning coffee if you want. Walk in the sun. Take the pressure off. Be honest at least with yourself. And last but not least... Imagine yourself happy. Wow, that's almost a positive note after pages of <laughs> darkness, you know. And, it is. And so you know, now we conclude not in the dark, but we're going to conclude in the light. And uh, maybe we can even imagine uh, the beautiful and bright Algerian sun. It won't yeah. make us want to shoot anybody <laughs> like it did him. So thanks for listening. Um, You've been with us through a difficult book to navigate. It's been very deep philosophically, uh, but we hope you enjoyed our perspective and that we kind of tied up some loose ends about this very famous book. So thanks for being with us and check out all of our social media. Check out our website at howtolovelitpodcast.com. Don't forget to buy a t-shirt or a mug (laughs) and check in with us. We love to hear from our audience. Thanks again. Peace out. are on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.